Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of Heart, Home, Faith. I'm your host, Olivia, and I am so excited to bring you today's tough topic episode. I promised myself that this season I was going to investigate topics that are a little bit hard. And so I am so excited to bring to you Letitia Ochoa Adams's interview with me. Letitia and I are talking about what her experience and her knowledge of poverty in America is truly like. Letitia is outspoken, authentic, and beautifully Catholic. Some of the things she says will be very challenging for people who believe that they belong to one particular political party. However, I just want to reinforce that here at Heart Home Faith, we have no political agenda other than to be authentically Catholic. This is what Letitia Ochoa Adams does. We are neither Republican nor Democrat in this conversation. We are just trying to live the gospel according to the way that Jesus has shown us through the gospels, through his life, and through our personal experiences. This particular episode is going to be broken up into two parts because it was a pretty lengthy interview. I really want us to take the time to digest what Letitia has to say because what she has to say is so, so important. We have to talk about issues that are hard and we have to allow ourselves time to process things we may have never thought of before. So without further ado, here is the first part of my interview with Letitia. Tisha, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Okay. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly too. Is it Letitia or do you pronounce yes. it a different way? No, it's Letitia. I, I always tell people it's like Morticia, but Letitia. <laughs> okay. Perfect. I have a friend, her name is Berea and she tells people it's like Maria, but Berea. So you, you guys can be friends. That's <laughs> so, awesome. I that know. makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> I know. It's funny. Like you've got these names that you just, sometimes you just need a rhyming name that, you know, maybe you've heard more yes. often to make it sink into your brain. Um, exactly. I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a guest for me on Heart Home Faith. This is the first podcast interview where I've kind of tackled more difficult questions as far as sociology and uh, the social systems of the United States. And that isn't because I don't care. It's just because I recognize my own lack <laughs> of experience in the brokenness. Um, but this year has really it's taught complex. me. Yes. And this yeah. year has really taught me that there are so many things and it's just, it's like almost impossible if you happen to have not really experienced these sorts of issues, these sorts of, you know, social justice issues, it's almost impossible to even begin to peel back the layers on them. So I'm just so grateful for your voice and for your willingness to talk about 
these difficult things because um, I think we don't talk about them. We get comfortable and they're uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. So, all right. Well, I wanted to chat with you today about poverty in America. And I think that we have this kind of like romanticized idea of what poverty is. And we're recording this during the Advent. Um, it probably won't come out until the new year. But, you know, I think like we kind of romanticize it. Like, you know, Jesus is poor and he's born in a stable. And like, yes. what does that really mean? Like, wait a minute. You know, do we really take a minute to think about what that means as far as our own comfort goes? Um, but, you know, we see it in movies. We read about it in books. And I, I just have this feeling <laughs> that it is not like <laughs> what we imagine it to be. And so I'd really love to know what would you like to tell people who've never lived in poverty about what it's truly like? Like, what is poverty really like? Poverty is exhausting. I mean, I don't think that people, if that, I think that's the number one thing I would love to get through to people is how exhausting of an existence it is to live in poverty. From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep, you're constantly um, in a state of crisis. So physically you're in a state of crisis, mentally you're in a state of crisis and you're constantly, you can't enjoy any wins because you know, the next bill is due, you know, the next like, and, and then it doesn't go away. So for instance, my mother, um, was born in 1941 to field hand workers in the panhandle of Texas. She started working in the fields at the age of four to help support her family. She was four years old, helping to support her family. When she was old enough to start cooking, she helped cook for her family. So she had 11 siblings. She helped, she was the oldest, so she helped take care of her siblings. So at the age of six, my mom was making full meals on a stove. They had a little set stool for her. She was also working full days. So she was working full days out in the field, just coming home and helping with dinner. Um, and, and so, and, and yet she has this, inherent need at the age of 79 to make sure people know she's not lazy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mother, you were working and helping feed your family at the age of six. Like, I don't think being lazy is a problem, you know, and, but she has to prove it to herself. So she has to put on clothes every morning when she gets up, like fully dressed. My mother does not believe in, um, pajamas all day and uh, she doesn't take naps. And so all of this stuff that's still in her life where she cannot relax because mm-hmm. she feels as if relaxing is somehow going to create an avalanche of crises that you cannot get out of. Right. And so yeah, she yeah. passed on that kind of anxiety to me and, uh, and then I pass it on to my children. So it's, that's what people mean by generational trauma, generational poverty. It's, it's, you know, goes hand in hand. Um, and, my husband and I have done fairly well for ourselves as far as pulling ourselves out of poverty. My husband's white, but he was also raised in poverty and comes from generational poverty. And yet when we run out of, I don't know, last night at dinner, uh, last night at dinner, he was grilling hamburgers and I went into the fridge to grab the cheese and there was only two slices of cheese. And all of a sudden it becomes this crisis of like, which kids are getting cheese, which kids aren't, how, who am I going to have to bribe into letting 
the kid with OCD get cheese? <laughs> like, oh, it comes right. into this crisis, and my husband's like, it's just not that serious. He had already put the cheese on the burgers, which is why we were so low. But automatically, like, I go into that crisis mode of we are out of food. Where are we going to get food from? Mm-hmm. I don't think that people really understand that it's not laying on the couch with our feet up watching soap operas all day, waiting for the free government money to come in. That doesn't, that's not how it works. And, um, on top of that, even if you are getting any kind of government assistance, the hoops you have to jump through to get in on them. Like, it is not like you just walk into the food stamp office and like, Oh, Hey, yeah, here you go. Here's all the free food stamps you want so that you can go buy, all the junk food you want. Cause I mean, I see people make comments like this about, you know, seeing people paying with food stamps and buying X, Y, and Z. And I just don't think that those people realize the humility, I mean, the humiliation, sorry, wrong word, the humiliation that you go through to get those, um, to get on those programs, the questions you have to answer, the judgment you have to sit through and the time, the energy, the babysitters you have to find so that you can go sit in an office for eight hours waiting for an appointment. Um, all of those things, if you have not experienced them, you don't know mm-hmm. about them. And yes, people do abuse all of those systems, like all systems, you know, exactly. but, but it's, uh, it's still difficult. It's not easy. Like you don't just win the lottery in welfare. Right. Yeah. And you know, I feel like this is a really good segue into kind of my next question, especially when you were talking about your mom and saying like, you know, your, your mom has this desire to insist that people know she's not lazy. And so I'm really curious about what would you say about this like bootstrap mentality that I think a lot of people have about poverty that like, if you just work hard enough, you'd no longer be in poverty. And, you know, this is something that I'm just starting to kind of unravel myself a little bit, but I was thinking about this question and kind of reflecting before we started talking. And I kind of realized how close many of us are to this idea of a prosperity gospel. Like, I don't think people realize how close many of our assumptions about poverty are to a prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel. And so, (laughs) you know, I, I was raised in a very uh, conservative area and, you know, there's been many good things that have come out of that, but it's been interesting as I've experienced more of the world that I'm finding that, you know, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I know you're very vocal about that too. Um, I just, I want to be authentically Catholic. And so I'm just really curious because I'm just, I'm feeling like, okay, that bootstrap mentality, that's not in the gospel. Is it? Like what, (laughs) what, how do we have this idea? Can you just shed some light, your thoughts on that? Um, well, you know, it's kind of complicated, but honestly, Jesus did not say the words, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He never told anyone that he always, he always looked at the people with resources and said, give them to the people without resources. He said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Like he didn't say, oh, to the 
the hungry and the naked, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> he never said that. Um, so where this mentality comes from is, I mean, it comes from Protestantism. Like it's not like you're, you're absolutely right that it's prosperity gospel, but it does come from a Protestant work ethic, which um, for a long time, Catholics fought against like in historic in American history. If you go read the entire public school system was created because Protestants wanted to take lazy quote unquote Catholics and take their children and teach them proper work ethic. So, I mean, really it's, I mean, honest, then that's like, like really, there's a huge debate among everyone about, you know, why should there be free public school and yada, yada, yada. And the argument was made that it was to take these Catholic children, one, to teach them real Christianity. So it's to convert them to Protestantism and to teach them real work ethic because Catholics were lazy and drunks. I mean, that it's so crazy to me that we don't in, in the United States of America see how the anti-Catholic, the anti-Catholicism that this country started with that created the public school system is now just what we say about um, immigrants or asylum seekers. And, it, and they're still Catholic. Like, that's the thing. Like, when I see Catholics saying the same stuff, I'm like... You have to understand your own history because it was stuff said about you. The Irish were Catholic, Germans. I mean, and you can go on and on. And uh, so that's where it's rooted in. Now, as far as how it, like, to me, and to me, this is what I tell people all the time. the The bootstrap mentality or the bootstrap philosophy that you can just lift yourself up by the bootstraps is deadly. And I say that from personal experience because that is the mentality that my son had. And he felt like it was impossible. And he felt as if he was going up a steep mountain he was never going to get to the top of, along with many other things that he had going on. That was another inherent problem that he had that overstressed his already, um, he was already in a um, mental health crisis. And then that mentality overwhelmed that already overwhelmed system because in the middle of his mental health crisis, he couldn't make enough money to support his family. Um, and, and I don't think it's just for him. I think, I think you can look at the suicide rates among farmers right now in rural America, like they're overwhelmed and then they have been conditioned to believe that everything they lack is their fault and that they can somehow pull themselves out of a deep financial situation. And when they can't, then what's left, right? Because what's, what's left to do, but give up, um, because nothing is the way you were told it was, which I think is why this conversation along with so many other complex conversations are difficult to have. Because I think a lot of times what we end up with is realizing that we were fed a bunch of things that conditioned us to believe things that isn't reality. And we have to mourn losing those things. And, and not everyone is in a place to give people grace to come to the, come to the, uh, you know, realization that all this stuff has been happening for history. Like we've been taught stories, the stories of the pilgrims and the Indians at Thanksgiving, like that story's not real. That's not how it happens. And yet we're fed it and we're taught it and we celebrate it. And we think it's this thing. I mean, I remember when I came to the realization in college that that was not how Thanksgiving went down. And I, 
I mean, I had a serious identity crisis or recently I came to the realization of what the Texas Rangers were created for. I mean, I'm a Texan through and through. I love being from Texas. And when I, when I heard the things that the Texas Rangers did to Mexicans on the border to take their land, the lynching and the pillaging and all, all the same story over and over, just different groups of people. Um, I had an identity crisis. Who am I if I'm not Texan? And I think we all come to those realizations. I think that's the hardest thing about trying to understand someone else's perspective or understand the reality of that there is, there are no bootstraps. All there are are communities. All there are are other people. All there is is us to help right. each other. Right. And in that respect, right, that's where I think a lot of us are conservative in the respect that it is not the government's job to necessarily give us everything. I'm not saying that it isn't a human right to have health insurance. There's some things that the federal government definitely should be in charge of. But but when it comes to community and community values and communities looking out for one another, that really isn't the federal government's job. It's really an, our neighbor's job. I mean, that's also what Jesus said. He said, love your neighbor. He didn't say vote for the right person and have the government take care of everyone. We have, we're responsible to take care of one another, not just write a check to a charity, not just vote for the right person, but do those things as well as look out for our neighbor and um, realize we are the bootstraps. Right. There are no bootstraps for someone else to lift themselves up. We are the bootstraps that help one another lift out of those things. Absolutely. I heard, so I lived in Texas for a while, as we've mentioned. <laughs> I actually saw you speak the first time you spoke outside of your parish. So I feel like we have a special nice. connection that you have no <laughs> idea about, but oh my gosh, I was such a, I was such a baby and I was listening to your story and I was like, okay, so this is like right as I'm like starting to have my really big conversion, reversion back to the faith. And I was like, oh my gosh, God, you gave her such a great story. Like, God, I need a story. And then he gave me a story. I was like, whoa, okay, maybe try to ask for a story. But no, no, I'm so glad he did. But anyways, like I just, I think about how, you know, it's so uncomfortable for us to realize that we are responsible for caring for others because yes. like we are, I, I don't know how to say this because I try to avoid sweeping generalizations, but I will admit to myself that I don't like to put myself out there for fear of rejection. And I have a hard enough time accepting help, even when I need it, that like, how can I offer help graciously to somebody else? But when I was in Texas, this is the whole roundabout story, uh, but when I was in Texas, I fell in love with Relevant Radio, and I was listening to one of the programs, and as I was driving, and the priest was saying, you know, that like a parish is meant to be a family, and I yeah. think that's something that we don't realize. Like, we don't realize how much work our parishes do or how much work our parishes can or should be doing to help yes. those in the community, especially, I mean, I know where you're in Austin, there are pockets of lots of affluence and lots of not affluence, right? Like it's yes. a really, Austin is a really strange city in that regard because of gentrification and all these other things. But, you know, we don't realize how, how many people truly do live in poverty and how many people 
you know, might have some sort of a look about them that they look affluent, but they're really not. And it's just, it's really uncomfortable to have those sorts of questions with people and to realize that like we have an obligation, like Jesus said, do these works of mercy. We have an obligation to, to, to absolutely. And that's, and, and the theology is there. The theology is that Jesus told us it is our duty. He has commanded us to help one another, to look out for one another, to be our brother's keeper on and on and on. But then just even if you left the theology out of it, um, for instance, everyone who came together to help donate towards my son's funeral and beyond. So, so they paid for my son's funeral and then we had at least six months of funds and um, six months of toilet paper, six months of paper towels. Like we, people took care of us for a solid six months after my son's suicide. And that, that really saved at least two other people's lives in this family because all of us had suicidal ideation after Anthony died because it's just pretty, it's pretty common for that to happen. But also, um, we, we were given the space to grieve an exceptionally traumatic loss instead of having to get back to work, get back in the rat race, worry about another crisis, worry about not having food, worried about a lights, this and this and this and that. I mean, um, so it's not, so even if you leave, leave the theology out of it, like it truly does help people to not, I mean, that, that loss of Anthony should have taken me and my family out because it was so traumatic and it was such a huge loss. And Anthony was such an important person in our family. Right. His children now, um, almost four years later are extremely happy. They play in the backyard, they giggle, they laugh, they dance. Um, yes, they know about their dad. Yes. They know that he's gone. Yes. They cry for him. Um, but they also live a very good life. And I feel, and I, um, say this to people all the time. If we had not had that six months of support, we would not be where we are today. We, I would have lost at least one more member of my family. Um, and, and it would be bad and we'd be in a consistent state of trauma and we aren't, we are relatively happy. I mean, there's always going to be that loss for us, but we are, I mean, we, it's a miracle, honestly. And I think that's, although Jesus is God and he tells us things because he is God and we ought to listen to him simply because he is God. He is not just telling us these things because he's like you know what'll be fun like if I tell them to take care of one another I just want to see what happens you know like he doesn't do it for that do it. <laughs> he does it because it's what's best for us it's mm-hmm. what's best for us it's what's best for the people we're helping I mean it's practical like God is practical he isn't just like deciding how to mess with us and he always calls us beyond right so even if and I say, I see this all the time when I see people who have a heart for social justice and for, um, you know, racial equality and equity and, and, and they have such a heart and such a passion for it. And then for where they lack is like, sometimes, and this is me, it's hard to love your enemies. And it's like, God always causes beyond. So it's like, if we think we don't have to help someone else in their time of need because they've drank too much or, or, Oh, I saw them at, um, you know, I saw them at the cell phone place and they have an iPhone or whatever. Like we, we make these 
And then if we're not like that, then it's like, oh, but that person, you know, is my enemy. Like I, we disagree politically. And then, you know what I'm saying? So there's always more. God always calls us to more generosity all the way around. Like Mother Teresa said, like poverty isn't just about money. No, not at all. Okay. So, um, oh man, I feel like we could talk for just hours and hours and hours about this, which I would love to do. Um, but you know, there was a story you shared not too long ago that really just made me want to understand more of the experience that people in America who live in poverty have. And it was, it was a story about your driver's license and um, it was right after your son was born. I'm just, I'm wondering if you could share that story because it really just moved my heart to, to really try to understand what's going on here. What is so broken? Why, you know, why is this your life compared to mine? Um, And again, it's not to say that like, you know, it's anybody's fault to live in poverty. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying like, wow, I had no idea that this was even an experience that somebody in America could have based on my own experience. And I think, and I, so the story is, um, the story is, is that I did not have my driver's license. I was already a mother. I got pregnant with Anthony when I was 16. I had him when I was 17. On my 18th birthday, I got my first job at a restaurant that sold alcohol, um, which I couldn't have worked there before because I was underage. So at 18, I was on my way to work. I was about to be late. I really loved this job. I was making good money. I was a cashier and um, I was super excited I was going to save up my money. Me and Anthony were going to get our own apartment, you know, we're, and I was going to go to college. Like I dropped out of school when I got pregnant with Anthony. And so my plan was always to go back to school and always to go to college and have a good life. I always understood that that was the path to taking my son out of poverty. Um, I got my first speeding ticket. I got a ticket for no driver's license. I got a ticket for no insurance. Um, and this ticket turned into like a $400 thing. I didn't have the money to pay for it. So then I, but I had to keep going to work. So then I got another speeding ticket. And before you knew it, the tickets, uh, you know, actually the second, the second ticket was not a speeding ticket. It was for no driver's license and no registration. We still didn't have enough money to do that. I'm saving up money. I'm trying trying to, I couldn't get registration because we didn't have insurance. I mean, it's just like this whole huge obstacle course. And when I told the story, um, about how that ended up. So that's when I had Anthony, that's when I was 18. So then it ended up that when I had my second child, Daniel, four years later, um, I had just had him. I was four weeks postpartum when the, they do a warrant roundup is what it's called. And they, go get you at your house if you have a warrant, which these tickets turned into after so much time of not paying them. Um, And they came and got me four weeks postpartum, put me in jail for two weeks. I went to my postpartum visit at my OBGYN in shackles and handcuffs. Granted, this was all no registration, no driver's license, no insurance. Insurance is very expensive and it just doesn't become a priority when you're trying to buy formula, diapers, food. I mean, Um, there's just so much. Also, I was 18, you know, so it's like normal mistakes. And so when I told this story, the typical questions were one, why didn't you get a driver's license? It's so easy. 
it's not easy when you have a mother who didn't get a driver's license till she was 35, so she can't teach you how to drive. Or you do know how to drive, but you can't get to the DPS office. You can't get all the documents that you need in order. I don't know if anyone's gone and got a driver's license, but you need a lot of documents. Um, and you're a teenage mother trying to work 40, 60 hours a week, uh, help your mom at home, take care of a baby, right? And all of these things that people don't realize are obstacles. And no, they didn't offer to me in high school because you have to go to school early in the morning in order to do that. And I was already going early in the morning because I was trying to graduate early. Couldn't go to the after school one because I'd been and work. I'd been working since I was 16 years old full time to help my mom. And so there was no room for me to go to driver's ed and driver's ed felt like a luxury, you know, especially coming from generations of people who just got in a vehicle and drove like <laughs> like my mom didn't go to driver's ed my uncles didn't go to driver's ed you know everyone just so it was around the time when everything kind of changed where you couldn't just get in a car and drive you also couldn't just go to the dps and take a test and boom you're out of there you had to have all these documents and all this stuff and then i didn't pay the tickets because you know in the reality of life when you have to decide to give the city $300 or buy diapers and formula or even go out to eat because everything else is so difficult, you really don't put that as a priority right. and you don't understand the consequences. And I have plenty of friends who ended up in the same situation as me. It's just that eventually their parents could pay for their ticket. Mm -hmm. They could teach them a lesson. Their parents could pay for for the ticket or when they got arrested, their parents would pay, bail them out or whatever the case might be. It was just a different situation. And for right. a lot of people, the situation is not that easy, no. you know, or you write a hot check. That's another thing. Sometimes I wrote, one time I wrote a hot check for uh, groceries and that turned into a warrant. And when you already have one warrant, you can't go to DPS to get your <laughs> license. Yeah, probably don't do that. <laughs> it will take you in. Like, you know, so, um, so all of those things people don't, yes. Was it a series of bad choices? Absolutely. Was it, um, solvable? Totally. But when you don't have a consistent, um, I don't know what the word is, but like when you don't have people in front of you who know how to deal with these things in the quote unquote right way, mm -hmm. you're learning on your own. So for me, it was all a crash course, like being an adult, having a car, driving to work, all of it was a crash course because this was not my mother's life. Right. My mother's life was so different than mine that I'm the first, like you're the first, you're the trailblazer. I had no siblings. I didn't live near cousins that were doing anything differently other than real mistakes that I really didn't want to follow behind, right. you know, like in gangs, kinds of stuff like that. So I was trying to do things a different new way and I had no idea how to do it. So mistakes were made and none of those mistakes were big enough or bad enough for me to end up in a city jail four weeks postpartum yeah. where my child was without me for two weeks. And that's the child that to this day has major depressive disorder, OCD, and anxiety, and is on medication for all of those things. I don't think that's a coincidence, you know? And those are the 
lifelong consequences of these things that people don't understand. It's really easy to say you should have, you ought to have, you could have, blah, blah, blah. But that's where I'm trying to say like people helping one another or systems that don't punish you for minor mistakes in such an unfair way where one person has access to resources to where they're not going to have a child who lives the rest of their life with anxiety and OCD because you failed to pay your tickets when you were 18 years old. Right. And I feel like it's just one of those things where it's like the, the judgment that you must have gotten with the story or with that experience. I mean, I've had three babies myself. I cannot even imagine walking in in you know handcuffs and being escorted because that's where I'm at like I I recognize that I've never been in that situation and I pray to God I never will be but you know I mean I I just I can't even begin to believe and I do I do believe I'm not saying I don't believe but you know to try to put myself in somebody else's shoes and experience empathy it's almost impossible because my parents paid for driver's ed. My parents paid for me to go to Catholic school. Like I recognize I had my parents who, if I had ever gotten into that sort of position, my parents would have bailed me out. And so realizing that not everybody has that safety net of, you know, family, parents, community, aunt, uncle, grandparent, not everybody has that. I think is just really, really eye-opening. Uh, because like yeah. you said, you were, you were a teenage mother, you were 18. Like we, we can just say pretty obviously, like when you are a teenager, you are not the brightest. Right. Because, you know, I was a teenager once too. And man, I thought I knew everything and I knew nothing. But- Absolutely. And then you're a new mom. So you really think you know everything. I mean, it's like this really bad intersection of knowing everything. I was 18 and a new mom's like, get out of my way. I know literally everything to do. And, you know, and that's an, like, I, and I also recognize that it taught me a lot in growing up. And I, I have um, a high level of resilience, uh, a lot of grit, and things don't knock me off my feet. Like, you know, I see a lot of people struggling in 2020, and I have empathy for them, but at the same time, I'm not, because it's like, this isn't even anything. You can call you can call your light company right now and be like, COVID, and they're like, okay, don't worry about it, and not shut your lights off. Like, in my life, that has never happened. If you don't have the money to pay for your light, the light bill doesn't the, the light company doesn't care what your reason is. You could literally, and I've done this, said your kid killed himself and you don't have the money to pay the light bill right now. And they will say, sorry, there's nothing we can do. So to me, like there's lots of, there's lots of benefits to having grown up struggling because I understand how to struggle. And I understand I, I am the person you want in a crisis to be next to you. Um, and I also am lucky in the sense that I don't, um, anytime I'm tempted to be bitter towards someone that has some form of privilege that I didn't have for no reason, like there's, there's no reason that some people have access to some resources and others don't. I mean, there are the intentional American systemic reasons but I'm talking about just like in general like why were you born to your family and I was born to my family like who we don't know right right um 
and anytime I try, I am tempted to be envious or bitter about that situation. I just think of my children and my children are tremendously privileged. My children wouldn't be able to survive out in the woods for 10 minutes. Like they just would be like, I don't even, where's the Wi-Fi? I don't understand what the Netflix passcode is out here. Like my, my kids are very um, privileged and, and it's been an honor to work hard enough to give them all of the things that I didn't have. So I don't fault anyone else for having been given those things by their parents. I think it's what parents do. I think it is what we should do. My only um, wish forward is that we all understand that all children deserve that not just our children and not just our family's children, but all children deserve that. And we can work together to make that happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you have been with the... Thank you so much to everybody for tuning in to this very special episode. One of the things I'm very passionate about is Catholic social teaching. And of course, caring for the poor is part of that. But in order to have an understanding of what it means to care for the poor, we first have to understand what poverty is, what it looks like, and what it does. I ask that all of you take some time to pray about whatever Letitia shared that struck you during this upcoming week. And tune in next week for our second part as we continue to tackle this topic, what is poverty in America today? I am so, so grateful to Letitia for joining me and I'm so grateful for her words of wisdom. You can find her on Instagram, her website, and I know she's got a Patreon, which I will be linking to the show notes.